Hmm. Well, maybe first off, thank you for being here. Um, just looking around, I see some uh, familiar faces. I've, I've been out here on and off over the decades, um, and many new friends. So maybe to ask you a question, um, how many of you are new to Spirit Rock, aren't, aren't regulars? Let me just see. Ah, Okay. Well, welcome here. It's an amazing, amazing place. How many of you are new to meditation? I feel like you're on. You're, we could all raise our hands on some level. <laughs> okay. And how many have uh, been with me before in some setting? Whether just in any setting. Let me just see. Yeah. Raise your hand. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, a number of people I, I see from yesterday, and uh, pleasure to be together. I was trying, I was reflecting on what I wanted to speak on tonight. I have a few, a, a talk that I've had, a, because the book came out, True Refuge, that I've been um, giving a lot. And I, just as I was reviewing things, thought t- today, I'd, tonight I'd like to do a little bit of a, a different angle and explore with you something that I've been reflecting about a whole lot, which is uh, more and more deeply, how do we bring the practices of true refuge, which translate to the practices of presence, of uh, really living from the truth and wholeness of who we are, into relationships in a conscious way. And I know many, many of us are asking that same question, that uh, it matters to us to love well. And uh, we know what it's like. Uh, we know the feelings of what it's like when in some way we're not all there. And there's different levels and types of loving. I mean, somebody sent me last year a little story about a group of children, uh, kindergartners on this school bus. And this little girl brought this, the driver of the school bus a handful of peanuts. And he was very, very grateful and thanked her because it was just such a... You know, it felt really good. And she goes back, and like ten minutes later, she brings him another handful of peanuts, and he's <laughs> really grateful and thanks her again. When it happens a third time, he says, Honey, why don't you and your friends enjoy them? And she says, Oh, no, no, we like to suck the chocolate off of them and then give them to you. <laughs> it's a different levels of generosity and giving, you know. So, so we many are familiar with Rilke saying that for one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks. You know, it's one thing you can go to a monastery and, and, and sit, but can you really look into the eyes of another and be really there and really sense that the one that's looking out is the one that's looking out from here and really feel that, that field of, of caring? Uh, we get caught. We get caught in that selfness, and it, it's humbling. You know, there's this longing to love without holding back that I that I sense in so many, and and the longing to let it in. It's even harder to let it in, really hard. But we know how our um, habits close us down. You know, our insecurities and our preoccupations. I, th- I think often of uh, one palliative caregiver who um, was with thousands of people when they were dying and said that the deepest regret 
the regret that she hears the most regularly um, is that I didn't live this life true to myself. That I lived according to the expectations of others and my own internalized shoulds. And, And the big place that that ends up taking place, not living true to ourselves, often is in uh, being real and open and there with each other. And, and it's not, of course, just the regret of the dying. It's, I think, for many of us, we have pretty regular junctures in our life where in some way uh, we pause and we get it, whether it's with our child or our partner or our friends or parents that are elderly or whatever it is, we get it that in some way we haven't been fully there. So it's a big deal for us. And the more stressed we are, the more our nervous system is in fight, flight, freeze, the more the parts of our brain, the more newly evolved parts of our brain that are capable of compassion and capable of mindfulness and empathy are in some way shut down. They're not activated. Not just That's just the science of it. The more we're stressed... You know, we know when we're really busy, um, when we're feeling anxious, those are not moments that we're sensitive to what's going on for another person. So those are the moments that we relate what we might call ego to ego. And I sometimes like the metaphor of um, that we come into this earth and the environment's somewhat difficult, you know, between the culture and the messages of our parents and so on. we take, we develop the spacesuit. It's kind of the egoic spacesuit that has its defenses and it has its strategies for making it through. And the, what's sad is that in time we get identified with the spacesuit, with our egoic patterning, you know, what we want, what we fear, how we're going to move through it all. And we forget who's looking through the mask. You know, we forget the, that formless beingness that's here and that tenderness that's inherent to that formless beingness when, when we're really just, when there's stillness or listening that's really here. We forget that tenderness. So we get caught in ego to ego. And um, when we're identified as an ego, what we see out there is other egos. That's what we see. And this is in contrast to our potential, which is really to relate being to being. And being to being is not some, you know, idealistic thing where there's no ego and, I mean, there's still, we still, there's still the patterning and the, and the coverings there. And, and, and some of it's completely wholesome, we need to navigate, but there's not the stickiness where that's who we think we are. There's some remembrance of what's here, that that wakefulness and that space. And when we look at another, we're not just seeing the mask. So we we kind of move from uh, ego to ego to being to being relating, and and sense the different shapes and forms that are here and celebrate the diversity. But there's much more fluidity and much more harmony. And I sometimes think of it like ice cubes, that the more identified we are, the more we're these solid selves with their edginess, and we kind of clink into other people's edginesses, you know. And when we 
are in that remembering that it's all water, it's all the same awareness, consciousness, uh, there's just a lot more softness and fluidity. It's, and we help each other melt a little, you know. So, what we know is that it's not easy, even when we touch into that beingness, uh, that we reconsolidate into ourselves very quickly if there's uh, criticism or blame, or if there's something where we're feeling we're about to, the possibility of, of failing in some way, or if somebody misunderstands us, we, we get ice cuby pretty quickly. So, and the closer we are in relationships, the more um, whatever is there to be triggered gets triggered, and it's messy. Okay, so there's, so there's this inquiry, like what really at the root keeps us getting so solid. And um, when I wrote Radical Acceptance, I really emphasized that as long as there's some deep down sense that we're not okay, that we're deficient, that we're falling short, as long as that's there, we're going to very quickly reconsolidate. You know, as long as there's that, in some way, that, that judgment that we should be more, that we're not enough. One woman described with her mother when she was in a coma dying that she had been in a coma for quite a while. And then at one moment she she woke up and she opened her eyes and looked into this my friend's face and said eyes and said, You know, all my life I thought something was wrong with me. And then she closed her eyes, went back into a coma and died. And those were her last words. And, and for my friend, it was actually a, a gift because she got a sense from the you know, landscape of a lifetime, what a shame and how sad that we would be living in this illusion of a self that's not okay. And of course that was like a, a real energizer to not buy in. So this is what we call the trance of unworthiness. And underneath that, you know, this core experience of... And I, and I really feel like this is right at the core. I am not lovable as I am. That that's the core wounding. And we have it in different degrees depending on, you know, the, the wounding or the sense of fear that comes from it, depending on our genetics or our culture and our family. And when there's severe trauma, trauma, we dissociate then this, the possibility for intimacy, for sensing our fundamental okayness and connection is really minimal. And then it's to different degrees and we can kind of look at ourselves and, and sense to different degrees it's not our fault that there's been the types of messages and surroundings and so on that leave us feeling not lovable as I am. And then we have to kind of compensate and put on a persona that's making it through. It can be really, really intense and real separation or it can just be our kind of everyday sense of uh, can't quite be spontaneous and self-conscious and double-taking on myself. One of my uh, favorite descriptions of this, uh, story of this, took place in New England and although I've heard it take place in different parts of the country so it might be one of those kind of stories but this woman vacationed where Paul Newman vacations in New England and um, she would every Sunday go for her brisk walk and then treat herself to an ice cream cone at the local coffee shop bakery ice cream place 
She goes there one Sunday, and there's you-know-who. He's sitting there. He's the only patron in the store. And, and she says so she walks in, and she sees him, and her heart skips a beat as her eyes make contact with the famous baby blue eyes, you know. And she's telling herself, hold yourself together. You're a happily married woman. You have three children. Keep it cool. Be compo-. You know, she's giving herself that little talk. And so she kind of glides right by him and looks demure and orders her double dip chocolate chip, you know, ice, whatever it is. Fine. So she gets, so she's gets, she puts her change in her purse, walks out to the car without even a glance in his direction, gets to her car and realizes, oh my God, I don't have my ice cream cone. <laughs> Back into the store she goes and she looks in the, and she looks to see if it's in the holder and the counter. Mm-mm, it's not in the clerk's hands. Then she looks over in his direction and he gives her that dazzling smile and says... You put it in your purse. <laughs> so we know it that when we're in, when we get stressed, not only are we disconnected from others, but we do dumb things. <laughs> but bottom line, we are pack creatures. We are social creatures. And our nervous system and our brains are rigged in a way so as more than anything we want to avoid rejection. We need to belong to the pack. And not belonging is scary and the the sense of shame that comes with not being okay enough to belong, as we know, is a kind of death. It feels like like a dying. Because if, you know, way back in time, not belonging was death. It meant death. What happens out of this core of um, believing that I am that self that's not okay is that we develop strategies to get through, and then as those strategies become solidified, um, you know, the identity becomes solidified. And I call those strategies false refuges, um, because the, the, the deep intention is to feel belonging. It's part of, you know, being who we fully are, which is connected with all beings. But they're false refuges because they give us a temporary fix of feeling either uh, less afraid, or more at ease, or some sense of we have something we're wanting, but they don't really deliver. So um, it becomes really important on the spiritual path to know our strategies, not to judge them, because they are literally rigged into our, our nervous system, and they're culture-wide at least, but so that if you know if you, what you can see, you can become free of. And I love the way Rumi expresses this. He says, Your path is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself you have built against it. So we're not trying to get somewhere. We're not trying to find love. Where It's a kind of, it's like that story of Swami Satchitananda who's, um, doing his yoga with a, a stu- students asking him, you know, do I have to become a Hindu to do this yoga? You know, and he says, I am not a Hindu, I am an undo, you know? 
undoing, you know, undoing strategies. So what are the barriers? I mean, that's the inquiry for each of us. How do I, how in this moment am I in some way separating myself from loving presence? It's such a powerful inquiry. You know, what is between me and feeling love or belonging in this moment? And as I say that, right in this moment, to any degree that there's an identification in a role or as, a, as this separate person who is in some way special or important or doing it wrong and, and really blowing it, or whatever those things are, to that degree there's not a sense of the truth of this uh, field of belonging, this kind of continuous space of awareness and tenderness that appears in its different forms. There's separation. So we start to look. And I'll just name some of the strategies that are most common and you'll, they'll be very familiar to you. One of the ways that we, one of our barriers to love is the way that we try to prove ourselves. We, we are, you, uh, it's very hard to trust. If we don't feel that we're lovable as we are, we think we have to do something to get approval. So it's very rare that we're with somebody else and we're not in some way trying to present the self that we hope will get the response we want. Does that resonate? Yeah. So we get very busy and we get, uh, we strive and we have these goals and we try to be somebody. Um, you know, I know for myself when I'm, I'm in that getting things done track where I'm trying to get things done to feel accomplished or whatever, when there's busyness, um, compassion is more abstract. Like, I, I value compassion, but it's not a visceral feeling. I'm, I'm assuming many of you can relate to that. We, we're not embodied because we're, you know, in the fight-flight freeze mode. So that's one way that, that's, that we create a barrier. Another way is that we, um, because of that basic restlessness and fear that comes with not feeling okay, uh, we distract ourselves, you know? And, and I think that uh, email and computers are one of the biggest new ways that we can really leave each other. I mean, how many people have been with a partner that is, you know, out for dinner and pulls out their iPhone and starts looking at a message. A lot of people. One woman, just, one story, a man and a woman are sitting in their living room and he's saying, you know, if I ever turn into a vegetable, please pull the plug. At which point she reaches over the TV set and she pulls out the plug, you know. It's like, we know, it's like that. Then another way, another barrier that we mostly know about is whenever we're trying to control somebody else. And we do it a lot. We try to make other people be the way we want them to be or treat us the way we want them. Or, or we even manipulate so, as, so they will think of us in a certain way. That's a manipulation. That's control. Um, and whenever we're in some way trying to control the situation, we're not able to see who's here. We're not remembering who we are. Okay? Again, it's my, my, one of my favorite illustrative stories on this one is of, uh, um, if you were here yesterday, you heard this, guy that um, works in a supermarket. And, a, and this man comes up to him and says he wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. 
And the guy said, I don't think we do that, but I'll go talk to my manager. So he goes into the back room to talk to his manager, and he says, there's a jerk out there who wants to buy half a head of lettuce. The guy's standing, he sees, right behind him. So he goes, and this fine gentleman wants to buy the other half, you know. <laughs> so later on in the day, later on in the day, they... <laughs> manager comes up and says, you know, I like a young man who can, you know, think on his feet. Uh, Where do you come from, son? And and he says, Canada. And he goes, what brought you down here? And the the guy says, well, Canada. All they have is whores and hockey players up there. The manager says, well, my wife is from Canada. (laughs) At which point the young man says, what team does she play for? (laughs) So, and we get rewarded for being quick on our feet, but it's, you know. Okay, so I'll just mention two more barriers. And one is all the addictive, uh, consuming ways we try to numb or soothe that, that insecurity. And that, of course, if we're fixated on, on trying to get something to soothe, uh, it doesn't work for us to be open and available. And finally... <coughs> And I think this is the false refuge that undercuts most deeply is judgment. Whenever we are um, judging another person, we're not seeing who they are. And when we're judging ourselves, we're not remembering who we are. And usually we do both and often at once. So. <laughs> so the bottom line is that if we're not aware of these strategies and we're enacting them, in some way, because they're generated from a sense of not okay, we're reaffirming not okay. I have to keep doing this because something's not okay. And as I mentioned, we can't see who's there when we're doing it either. Now the good news is that uh, meditation and mindfulness, just becoming aware of the strategies and having the intention not to judge them, but to just be more present in the midst of them, open some space where we can choose um, something different. And this is really the good news of, of Buddhism and of neuroscience and of uh, many of the attentional practices, that we have strong habit patterns and neuroplasticity. The same uh, ways that we create these neuropathways, we can create new ones. And it has to do with shifting how we pay attention and where we pay attention. So not only can we rewire ourselves in a way that helps us to be true to ourselves and be true to our true selves, really inhabit and express love and awareness, but that rewiring helps others to rewire. It creates an atmosphere of safety, which is critical, and acceptance and care that really enables another person. It creates a perfect environment for their attention also to shift. So now we're going to look at how we do that and divide it up into two categories. And one category is how we can pay attention to our inner life in a way that shifts our patterning and makes us more available to intimacy and then how we can pay attention to each other. And <laughs> we'll see if we have time for all that. It's a lot. But I'll, I'll, maybe I'll begin by saying that um, we're really, when we're paying attention to our inner life, we're watching how we leave. 
We're just watching how we leave. You know, there's that, there's this cord with little dog bones, a necklace, and it says, sit, stay, heal. <laughs> you know, we're learning to come back and really stay with what's here. And the what's here deep down is the shame and fear around uh, not lovable as is. So we're learning to be with, uh, Carl Jung calls it the unlived life. Whatever energy's gotten stuck in there that's not been felt and seen and lived. It takes a huge amount of courage to become more intimate with ourselves and each other because we have to go through those layers or that, those pockets of unlived life. And um, so the two areas that are most germane to relationships of unlived life that we carry around is that in us which is uh, that we haven't really worked with is that in us which really desires and longs for and fixates like I want and I want this and it's out there and that will fill the something missing feeling okay that's one area and the other area with relationships is I don't like I don't want I'm blaming you're bad something's wrong you know so how do we work with that uh, that those different emotions when they come up and to say with clinging it's pretty um, pervasive that we have a sense of what I want, I need, is you out there. We, we fixate with desire. That's the nature of desire when, we, when, we get, um, when it gets revved up, unless we're very awake. So one example, one man that was, I was working with came to one of our fall retreats, came right after a breakup, and he was obsessing about the breakup and feeling, you know, the, both the, the woundedness of it, but also just his craving, his yearning for an intimate relationship, how important it was. And at that point, here's the options. You, when somebody's got this strong craving or yearning, you can say, well, let's be mindful of the craving and the yearning and watch it and sense it as a, a you know, <coughs> cluster of sensations and sense how it comes and sense how if you are with it and you bring the two wings of awareness, which is noticing what's happening and allowing it fully, it comes and it goes and there's less identification. That's one way of working with craving. And that's the way that often we most encounter it uh, in Vipassana retreats. But there's another way also which has to do with bringing deeper attention that's got a quality of inquiry that I want to share with you tonight, which is and what it's just, which is what I did for him, which is I said, okay, so you're feeling all this craving and longing. What is it that that crave, if you could just go inside it, just feel it fully, what is it really wanting? What's that craving really longing for? Well, at first it's, of course, for her, or for some archetypal her, that that's what he wanted. But then I said, but what is it actually wanting to experience? Oh, I want to feel special, I want to feel good, I want to feel connection. I said, well, what is that like? What is it you're really, really wanting to feel? Well, I felt a wave of grief come up then because there was some sense of not having but some deep yearning to belong. I just want to feel belonging. I don't want to feel separate. I just want to feel a part of, just a part of. And then so I said, well, open to that. What would that be really like? Open. You might sense for yourself, what does it really mean? to uh, feel belonging, and for him it was like loving belonging. What does it really mean? Warmth, light, fully alive, no boundary. I said, well, just 
let go and open into that for a moment. Just sense that. Luminous, oneness. And if you get a sense for it, he was really... What he was longing for was what he truly is. He traced back the longing instead of having it fixate on a thing out there. He traced it back to its source. He was longing for that loving, luminous presence that's his right always and already here. Now, he practiced that and he came back and said, I'm finding it, if I really have the time and the, the discipline to trace it back, it's here. And there's something in knowing that that gave him a kind of a, a trust. And, of course, he still wanted to find a person that could help him to come into contact with that. So this isn't like tracing back the longing means we don't engage with each other and find people that help us mirror the goodness and feel the connection and help us open up into that non-separation. But what a powerful realization that when we really feel strong yearning or craving, we can, instead of following the direction it's pointing at out there, we can trace back into its source and start to realize that all longing is in some way calling us home. Our sickness is homesickness. That's, that's the title of a book by Diane Connolly, and I think it's a beautiful title. That we're not trying to get somewhere. This is the most radical teaching of the Buddha. We're not trying to fix ourselves or shine ourselves or get somewhere. In, the, in any moment we think it's somewhere else, we're not inhabiting the awareness that's fully here, always here. Powerful practice, tracing back the, the longing. That's, that's one I wanted to, to name. Now the other, longing is one expression of when we're caught in that egoic self where we forget who we are and we're playing it out in relationships and it's a barrier because the craving when it attaches is a barrier the other barrier is when there's aversion and we're pushing away and there's blame so I'll uh, speak to that a bit and, and the way that we can work with that again through an example and this example um, is, it's in the book True Refuge I shared it yesterday because it taught me a lot was a uh, this man I went to college with, African-American uh, photojournalist and a brilliant man, wonderful guy. And he, uh, we lost touch for a while, we got back in touch. He married a Caucasian woman. And what, what happened was that her mother um, completely shut down against him. She had this idea that they were ruining their lives, they weren't meant for each other, this was all wrong. And so they would visit and her, her family and she would be rude. And they'd leave and he would feel hurt and angry and his wife would feel outraged and say, we don't have to go back there ever again. But he didn't want to drop it. And here's why. First of all, his teacher was Chogyam Trungpa. And he had practiced what's called the Bodhisattva aspiration, which is really the aspiration for may this, whatever is occurring, may this awaken this heart and mind, and may this heart and mind awaken, serve the awakening of all beings. 
Uh, there's better language for it, but this aspiration to really serve awakening. So that no matter what's going on, this is it. Let this wake me up. This is what was going on, you know. That was one thing. And then the other is, Chogyam Trungpa has a, a teaching which I think is fantastic, which is, never give up on anybody, ever. Doesn't mean you have to talk to them or be with them or anything. It's just hold open this possibility, which is truth, that Buddha, nature, lives through, shines through every being, everywhere. And what would it be like if we really remembered that for each other and for ourselves? So, this kept him being willing to visit, but he wanted some support in how he was going to do it because he was so, you know, he was all whipped up. So, we did some work and we practiced, you know, how to bring these two wings of attention. Uh, when I say two wings of awareness again, this seeing clearly what's happening in this moment. And the wing of compassion, really holding with kindness. So we brought it to what was going on in him, and he was able to unlayer some, recognize that, you know, the, the background story of having been brought up as uh, his father left young, and he was trying to fill his father's shoes with his mother and his mother was always depressed and anxious so it made it so he always felt like he was falling short he was not who he was supposed to be and then he went to school with me which was a you know he was very much in the minority and so there's some marginalization there and he's in a profession again where he's in the minority and always feeling in some way not belonging not enough and then here he marries a woman and he doesn't and he's not enough for the relationship so he got in touch with that, what I sometimes call that ouch, of that really old place of not okay. And when, as he got in touch with it, he was able to then, it's attend and befriend, those are the two wings. He was able to befriend. As soon as we get touched by the suffering, our own or another's, natural tenderness opens up. Natural tenderness. So I put my hand on my heart because that's I often when I teach, you know, um, the gesture of compassion, and it really helps to, to touch ourselves. Like it, it is literally the nervous system receives it in a good way when we do it with a gentleness. Um, so, you know, we just talked about just holding that place with compassion. As he did that, as he held his own wounds with compassion, he could look at her in a, in a bit of a different way. Um, he decided he was going to go for Thanksgiving but bring his camera because that gave him enough of a... Like, he could step back a little bit and, and sense that he was going to you know, stay in touch with himself and, and try to hold that space for her. It was a difficult holiday. She continued in her uh, rudeness and so on. But he was okay. And he took some good pictures. And then they went for Thanksgiving, for Christmas. And this is what really got to me they did the gift exchange. She gave him, the mother gave this guy socks that did not fit and candy, and he was a health food guy. Anyway, he gave her two framed pictures, and when she opened them, she began weeping because they, they were, they'd caught her. One of them caught her when she was with her new granddaughter, uh, kind of looking into her granddaughter's eyes adoringly. And the other, she had kind of flopped onto the couch with her husband and they were, they were having a playful moment. So he caught her goodness. He saw her. 
And um, that cracks something open. So the way it happened, I mean, it started with blame and distance, and he was angry and furious at her, and when he could tend and befriend, and that's the language, you go from fight-flight to attend and befriend, okay? This is going, we're really going evolutionary up the brain, right? Fight-flight, the lower, the, you know, the reptilian brain and the uh, limbic system, and then you go up to the frontal cortex and attend and befriend, you know? when he started attending and befriending his own inner life, which is what we have to do. And this is true whenever we're caught blaming or not forgiving another. The first step is not to try to forgive. The first step is to attend and befriend our own hurt or fear. If we skip that step, forgiveness is premature and it's not real. So that's what he did. He attended and befriended. Then he began to see from a bigger place. He was inhabiting... He would move from kind of the spacesuit reactivity to inhabiting more of the uh, awareness and uh, sensitivity and intuitiveness that's really who he was. Just to say, there was a thaw, and it wasn't really quick, but there was a thaw. So what we're talking about right now is this capacity we have to in relationship and in reaction, whether it's clutching onto someone or pushing them away, we have this capacity to bring our attention inwardly to come back home to who we are. And the key to it, to either of these um, examples, is pausing. We have to pause and see the pattern, that sacred pause where we, in that pause we have some choice. It says, Viktor Frankl puts it, in between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space is our power and our freedom. Okay, part two. So, now we... How do we from a little more presence, how do we train ourselves to see each other, okay? And it takes practice. You know, so much of the Dharma when it you know, came to the West for the first several decades really had to do not with relationship but with being intimate and getting to know who's here. Very little training on how to be with each other. It's beginning to percolate now all over the place. But we need it. How quickly do we jump into that, you know, reactive space to itself as soon as we start engaging? Those that, how many of you have uh, sat long retreats? Can I see by hands? A lot of you. Then you know what it's like at the end of a retreat and sometimes you can touch these very precious places of silence and openness and metta that includes everybody. And then how many days does it take before some of the most ridiculous old behaviors, the most neurotic stuff, just you know quick. So we, don't, we stop seeing who's there. There's one story of a woman who um, was, came into her, business, her office building, goes upstairs to a conference with some colleagues, and she said to them, you know, I was outside and just saw a clown outside. And one guy said, was it a real clown or was it somebody dressed up as a clown? <laughs> <laughs> it's a sleeper, forget it. <laughs> okay. Okay, this is, <laughs> this is Pema Chodron. She says, 
We don't set out to save the world. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. Okay, so this is the shift of attention where we start sensing who's here and how are you doing? And what's it like for you right now? And how is this affecting you? It takes training. Now, in the, in the bodhisattva tradition, it's kind of described as bodhisattva trainings, trainings of awakening our attention to, to the world around us. And there are two primary bodhisattva trainings in this relational field. And one of them is to learn to see each other and see the vulnerability that's there. That's really our shared vulnerability. But to, to be able to see that, to look at another person and get it, that just like I'm scared, you're scared. Or just like I have doubts or fears, and the Buddha had doubts and fears, you have doubts and fears. We all, we're all in the same place together in this. And so we know that... Um, when we're preoccupied, we are just not aware of the subjectiveness of another person. And so that's the training. And one of the best, um, you know, practices, Tonglen, from the Tibetan tradition, it's, in psychodrama, it's called role reversing. We literally practice, what's it like to step inside and sense looking through that person's eyes? So, perhaps just a brief reflection, just to give a taste of that one. Um, so just invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And begin by, uh, in this pause right now, just let yourself uh, attend and befriend within. Just feel what's here in the moment. sensations, moods. Tonglen uses a breath to help to get in touch. You don't have to use a breath, but it's helpful. You can sense it a little if you breathe in and just sense with the in-breath You're willing to touch into vulnerability, into the realness that's right here in your own body and tissues and heart. It's a willingness to contact what's here. You're breathing in prana and breath, energy, and letting this life be contacted inside in a cellular way, in an energetic way. And with the out-breath, you're sensing a kind of releasing into the wholeness of space, letting whatever's here be held, but let it belong to the truth of this vastness. So breathing in, and you might breathe into wherever you feel vulnerability. And breathing out and sense that you can let it float. It's like you can let it float and belong to the vastness of the space that surrounds us. You can breathe in and feel contact with wherever there's solidity or tightness, soreness, a sense of selfness. 
You can breathe out and sense the space that's inside and around it, the continuous space. that comprises our wholeness. And you might bring to mind someone that is close to you in some way who's having difficulty. Someone who's having difficulty. And take a moment to just register how you normally are viewing or perceiving that person in their difficulty. Perhaps what story you're aware of around it, how you normally regard it, how much you normally let it in. And sense the possibility of entering in and really sensing that person's life and reality from the inside out. So that you're looking through this person's eyes at how life is right now, feeling with this person's heart, sensing the worst part of what's going on. You might notice if you, what you're believing about yourself and the world as this person. Your sense of self is. And in a visceral way, the kind of disappointment or fear or shame, upset, So that as you breathe in, you can begin to sense you're completely letting yourself contact and touch that vulnerability. You're breathing in for this person. And as you're breathing out, you're sensing how this tangle of feelings, the stuckness, can belong to something larger. Breathing in and breathing in right to the place of vulnerability where there's the most need. Breathing out and sensing it held in space, filled with space. You might sense what this person most needs. If that, that place of vulnerability could express itself, what's most needed? Does this person need to feel loved? understood, seen, accepted. Sensing on the out-breath that you can offer what's needed. You might even offer a message, a prayer of care.
for one healer the prayer was, I'm sorry and I love you. Thich Nhat Hanh says, darling, I care about the suffering. Whatever the message is. And you can, with the tonglen, then enlarge it so that you begin breathing in for all of us that might be struggling in this way. And know that you can breathe in and be touched by that collective suffering. And you can breathe out and sense the truth of this vastness, this vastness of presence that has room for this living, dying world. You can begin to sense that you're allowing this, your being to be touched by suffering and discovering a boundless, awake, empty heart that it all floats in. So that's the first bodhisattva training, which is to let ourselves be touched by suffering and discover how this heart has the space and tenderness to respond uh, in quite a beautiful way. The second training is the training in being able to see the goodness, uh, the beauty that shines through each being. And in in terms of our individual development, it's our parents mirroring that teaches us who we are. They can either mirror in a way that turns us into a very separate and deficient self, or they can mirror in a way that that helps us to recognize our innate belonging, our innate aliveness, our innate consciousness, and helps us to relax and rest in that. There's one uh, school teacher I knew who when he first started teaching, this is, he'd teach very young children, and he'd be very, very reactive when they wouldn't cooperate, and he'd, you know, he, he, was, he was doing the much more the controlling kind of thing. But he started to watch them more carefully and experiment, and what he came up with, one of his strategies, which I thought was so beautiful, is when a child was really all restless and tossing things around, and he, he'd kind of sit with them and, and sit kind of across from them, and they'd be doing this and that, and just keep looking at them. And finally, when there was any real contact, he'd look into their eyes and he'd say, Oh, there you are. <laughs> and, and there was something about that that, they would go, something in them would go, oh yeah, here I am, <laughs> you know. But it, it was, I just thought that was so beautiful. In a way, that's the essence of namaste. You know, I see the divine in you. And I sometimes think if our entire path was all just, just considered a training in namaste, the whole path was in some way honoring and seeing and being the beauty that we see within ourselves and seeing it in the others and bringing it out. What a beautiful world, if that was the training. So uh, a story that, that I love, that um, it's been, f- 
it's been floating around, similar stories floating around. I'll share it with you. This is the original, uh, you may have heard one of the similar ones. This is original written by uh, a nun, Sister Helen Rosa. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. And uh, you, you'll, by listening to the story, you'll get how long it was written, a good number of years back time of Vietnam War. She describes teaching at a um, Catholic school and how um, she had one student, she, all her students were dear to her, but one student really kind of stood out, Mark Eklund, and she said he was neat in appearance but had that happy-to-be-alive attitude that made even his occasional mischievousness delightful. Mark talked incessantly. I had to remind him again and again that talking without permission was not acceptable. What impressed me so much, though, was his sincere response every time I corrected him for misbehaving. Thank you for correcting me, sister. So one morning my patience was growing thin when Mark talked once too often, and then I made a novice teacher's mistake. I looked at Mark and said, If you say one more word, I'm going to tape your mouth shut. It wasn't ten seconds until Chuck blurted out, Mark's talking again. I walked to my desk very deliberately, opened my drawer, and took out a roll of masking tape. Without saying a word, I proceeded to Mark's desk, tore off two pieces of tape, and made a big X with them over his mouth. I then returned to the front of the room, and as I glanced at Mark to see how he was doing, he winked at me. That did it. I started laughing. The class cheered as I walked back to Mark's desk, removed the tape, and then shrugged my shoulders. His first words, of course, were, Thank you for correcting me, sister. At the end of the year, I was asked to teach junior high math. The years flew by, and before I knew it, Mark was in my classroom again. Since he had to listen carefully to my instructions in new math, he didn't talk as much as in ninth grade as he had in third. One Friday, things didn't feel right. We had worked hard on a new concept all week, and I sensed the students were frowning, frustrated with themselves, edgy with each other. I had to stop this crankiness before it got out of hand. So I asked them to list the names of the other students in the room on two sheets of paper, leaving a space between each name. Then I told them to think of the nicest thing they could say about each of their classmates and write it down. It took the remainder of the class period to finish their assignment, and as the students left the room, each one handed me their papers. Charlie smiled. Mark said, thank you for teaching me, sister. Have a good weekend. And that Saturday, I wrote down the name of each student on a separate piece of paper, and listed everything that others had said about that individual. On Monday, I gave each student his or her list, and before long, the entire class was smiling. Really, I heard whispered. I never knew that meant anything to anyone. I didn't know others liked me so much. No one ever mentioned those papers in class again. I never knew if they discussed them. Didn't matter. The exercise had accomplished its purpose. The students were happy with themselves and with one another again. That group of students moved on. Several years later, after I returned from vacation, my parents met me at the airport. Uh, My father cleared his throat as he usually did before saying something important. The Ucklands called last night, he began. Really, I said, I haven't heard from them in years. I wonder how Mark is. Dad responded quietly. Mark was killed in Vietnam, he said. The funeral is tomorrow, and his parents would like it if you could attend. I had never seen a serviceman in a military coffin before. Mark looked so handsome, so mature. All I could think at that moment was, Mark, I would give all the masking tape in the world if only you would talk to me. 
After the funeral, most of Mark's former classmates headed to the farmhouse, Chuck's farmhouse, for lunch. Mark's mother and father were there, obviously waiting for me. We want to show you something, his father said, taking a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed. We thought you might recognize it. Opening the Belford, he carefully removed two worn pieces of notebook paper that had obviously been taped, folded, and refolded many times. I knew without looking that the papers were the ones on which I had listed all the good things each of Mark's classmates had said about him. Thank you so much for doing that, Mark's mother said. As you can see, Mark treasured it. Mark's classmates started to gather around. Charlie smiled rather sheepishly. I still have my list. I keep it in the top drawer of my desk at home. Chuck's wife said, Chuck asked me to put his in our wedding album. I have mine too. Marilyn said, it's in my diary. And then Vicky, another classmate, reached into her pocketbook and there it was, worn and frazzled. I think we all saved our lists. That's when finally I sat down and cried. I cried for Mark and for all his friends who would never see him again cried for the power and the beauty of seeing the goodness and helping beings come home when they can experience it in themselves and each other. So the training is um, necessary because we have uh, what's called this negative bias in terms of the evolutionary conditioning to fixate on what's wrong. And we do it within ourselves. And our tendency is not to look and see, ah, let me just see who's looking through, let me see your beauty, let me see your goodness. We're a little more wary and fear-based than that. So it takes some practice. And beyond that, to not just see it, but to express it, not our habit. Again, that spacesuit self, it's just a, it's a little bit edgy. I remember reading Rachel Naomi Remen, many of you probably know, wonderful physician, teacher, writer, discover, describing with her, um, when her grandfather died when she was seven years old, she was really, it was it was very big deal because... Uh, he had given her a name, Neshumala, which means little beloved soul. And she was afraid that after he died that God would no longer experience her that way, you know, if, he, if no one was around to call her by that name. And so what she says she, is that I discovered that once blessed we are blessed forever. Many years later, when in her extreme old age, my mother, this is Rachel writing, my mother surprisingly began to light candles and talk to God herself, I told her about these blessings and what they had meant to me. She smiled at me sadly. I've blessed you every day of your life, Rachel. I never had the wisdom to say it out loud. So this is the invitation, is to, to see each other and see what's there and take the, the, have the courage to be mirrors for each other. It's the most beautiful gift that we can possibly give. Often, for, for many of us, it's really not until um, something happens, the ground shook and we're about to lose somebody, somebody's going to die, we're going to leave, that we, that we kind of break through and, and, and reach out in that way. 
I remember um, I went to a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh about, I think it was probably about 20-some years ago now. And I went with a friend who I hadn't been... I really loved her dearly. We barely had any time together. So we went to this retreat together. We drove the, you know, it was two hours away and sat the retreat. And at the end, he has a kind of ritual that he does, which is that you have a partner and you stand in front of your partner and you say namaste. So you you see the sacred in you. And then you hug each other. And then on the first inhale and exhale, you basically mentally reflect, I'm going to die. And then on the second one, you reflect, you're going to die. And then on the third, it's, and we have just these precious moments. And as you can imagine, the mass drops away, the, the, the ice cubes melt, whatever metaphor you like, you just sense that, that one loving presence that is who we are and is what we belong to, is there. That's the formal practice. Informally we begin to more and more just have the intention to see who's shining through this body-mind. But it takes dedication. Um, If we commit just with people we see, if you just have a few people you see regularly and you say, I'm just going to look more carefully the circles widen, it ripples out. I really feel like these practices of um, moving from ego to ego to being to being are the hope of the future of this planet. That if we can really sense our, our belonging, if we feel our belonging and feel what shines through this natural world, we will not destroy this earth. I do hope that uh, you'll sign on you know, this, this request to the teachers um, that our earth needs our attention. When we feel our belonging, of course we pay attention. It's our larger body, you know. And when we feel our attention, our belonging to each other, we don't make war on each other. I, I remember about uh, three years ago now, a woman who lived in Uganda uh, would make, she took some trips to Rwanda to visit the Genocide Memorial Center there. And so she wrote to me after she came back from one of those visits and she said she wanted to tell me about a quote that was on a a plaque in the memorial. And it was um, written by a man, Felician Natangwa. And here's what he said. If you knew me and you really knew yourself, you would not have killed me. It's the only way to peace to realize we belong to each other. So, so tonight, as a way of closing, just to say that we've been really exploring whether you call it the practices of true refuge, of remembering who we are, or practices of meditation, or the bodhisattva trainings, practices of waking up to the truth of who we are and seeing it in each other. So I'd like to close in that spirit with just a a, a brief reflection, okay? And uh, just to begin with, uh, as you just settle in and just take a pause.
let your senses be awake. Because we can't open this gateway of loving unless we're in our bodies. It's, it's an idea unless we're in our bodies. So take some moments perhaps to re-relax, let your shoulders be soft, your hands, your belly. Feel the inflow and outflow of the breath. And bring to mind someone who's in perhaps what you might call a closer circle in your life, someone you see and care about somewhat regularly. And since you could bring that person, uh, who they are right here, close into the room, so you can see a person's face, their eyes, sense uh, where the vulnerability lives in this person, the natural human fears and disappointments, challenges. And see their goodness. Take a moment to sense what it is that brings up your loving You might imagine and sense what it would be like to offer your blessing to let that person know out loud, to let them know their goodness. To imagine really that mutual namaste where you are both recognizing each other, recognizing the spirit that's waking up through this human incarnation. I mean, just sense the heart space that opens up that you can just relax back and just be that heart space. Sometimes called the empty, radiant heart. So that others can appear in your mind. Just whoever comes to mind. You can sense how they too belong in this heart space or part of this heart space.
Mary Oliver writes, So every day, so every day I was surrounded by the beautiful crying forth of the ideas of God, one of which was you. So every day, so every day, I was surrounded by the beautiful crying forth of the ideas of God, one of which was you. May all beings awaken to realize loving presence as essence. May all beings live from loving presence. May there be peace on earth. May there be peace on earth. May all beings awaken and be free. Namaste. So thank you for your beautiful presence and it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, blessings. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.